So we, we actually finished a whole chapter last time. The first one? Yes. Yeah. Chapter one. Uh, I had one person here. <laughs> and um, um, Oh my, it's been a week. Uh, my version, just a, a little note in verse 5, my version has destined instead of predestined, and I think that's a more accurate destined. translation. Destined. I like that better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, doesn't bring up all the Calvinistic baggage yeah, exactly. that we tend to have when we think of predestined. NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, it stands in the long chain of revisions uh, all the way from, from uh, the King James. Uh, so King James, English Revised Version, and then the Revised Standard Version, and then the New Revised Standard Version. When I saw that too, I said, why don't they just put destined? <laughs> yeah, well, some versions do... This one certainly does. We got in a big discussion about forgiveness and trust and, and which comes first. And I, I said forgiveness comes first. And trust uh, immediately begins to follow. And that trust enables God to transform our lives. So it was, it was an interesting discussion. Okay. So we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 1. And Phil? Since you're the new person on the block, okay. would you read, let me see, would you read two, two verse, through verse 10? Okay. Um, I'm reading. Mine actually is the... Giant print. King James. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> and you <clears throat> hath he quickened who were dead in transpasses and, transpasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, whereas where he loved us, wherewith he loved us, <clears throat> Even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ, by, and in parentheses this is, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and not of yourselves it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. Okay. Any questions or observations in this passage? That was all the good stuff here. What it catches my eye is the one where he says that we are in Christ. By grace... By grace you have been saved? Raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Mm -hmm. We're not there and yet we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we can be in heaven in, in our minds and in, our, in the sense of His presence now. We're sitting there. Yeah. By grace in Christ. Heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, that's very nice to know that we can be there. Yes. <clears throat> and this actually summarizes, verse 8 summarizes what kind of what we were talking about last time. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yeah, by works, yet works has come. That's right. Well, like in verse 5, too, where it says, even though we were um, dead in sins, that has quick, quickened us together with Christ, meaning that, you know, people might not even realize what state they're in, but he's still working on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here it is saved. After we are dead in our sins, it is by his grace we, you are saved. Yeah. <clears throat> because we were dead, not knowing that we were dead. Yep. Did anyone have a question about um, verse 3? All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. He was included in Paul included himself. I think, does anybody have God's wrath in that verse? Oh. Children of wrath. Yeah. Children, children of wrath. Children of By wrath. nature, children of wrath. No one has God's wrath. Well, there's a little. Let me see what it says on the sidebar. Last verse. Two, two. And we're by nature children of wrath. By nature. See, when in in the Hebrew Bible, and I find that Paul is very Hebraic, really. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, when you have sons of Israel, you mean the Israelites. When you have the Sons of disobedience, you have the children who do, do who disobey and and are disobedient. So when you have the children by nature, the children of wrath, you have ch- people who are angry, and hostile. It's it's not it's not God's wrath here. It's children of of anger and and it's, it's really the only way to read it consistently with the rest of the Bible. The way. So children of anything means they're that type. Yeah. And we certainly have a manifestation of the children of wrath at the moment, don't we? In this world. Yes. It's always been there, but it's more marked now. (laughs) For us, anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it feels like it's kind of let loose. Yes, it feels like something has been unrestrained and unleashed and... Suddenly yes. we wake up to so much anger and violence. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's been increasing actually since yeah. when was it? About two thousand fourteen. And people say that they do things because they're angry. Mm-hmm. Like they admit to their anger. Mm-hmm. That's by nature. Yeah. And, and what makes that really clear is that they're by nature, their very nature now, is angry and violent. And, uh, I would like to well, tie... Like, like it's in verse 2, the last part, of course, is, is the <coughs> prince of the powers over the air. That's his work, working in mm-hmm. people, and all of us, really. Mm-hmm. We have God's he breathes his spirit into people, I think. Yeah, Controls so that's them. Happening. That's his work. I'd like to compare this with Romans. I know we've done this before, but I didn't compare this passage with Romans and how it... um, Romans 2. And we're going to start with verse 
6. <clears throat> for he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and obey not the truth and wickedness, but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Maybe I should jump up, but it, the wrath and fury is not God's wrath and fury. It is the fury and wrath of people. Um, and then if you go back up to, um, okay, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but by your hard and impenitent heart you are storing a breath, and the Greek can read in yourself on the uh, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, he unleashes gives us what we want. Uh, maybe, hopefully not us, but he gives people who are angry and that he's been restraining. Mm-hmm. You know, there comes a point you can't restrain anymore <clears throat> without using force because the violence and the anger is so great that you might as well just let it go and kind of burn itself out. And I, that's what I see going on in our world. So, back to Ephesians. Are we ready to move on, or is there something else here that struck you? Questions? Speaking about that, the end of time, though, do we see, do you see both things taking place, or just one thing taking place? Is it we're letting things go by itself, or is there also intervention, divine intervention, like it did in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I I see divine intervention, yes, with whoever will listen to God. He will protect them or whatever uh, as he sees fit. Um, But I don't see two kinds of wrath working side by side. I see basically God's wrath is is giving people up, as it says in Romans 1, Mm -hmm. and letting things things play out. Um, And then we have wrath. (laughs) But how do we explain when the Bible says that, well, two things, well, main thing is, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, who brought the fire from heaven? It wasn't Satan, but it was who was it? It doesn't say that, it says God did it. And at the end of yeah. time, it all says that fire comes out from heaven. It, to me, it, it's, a, it's a mercy act. Well, it can be seen that way. Um, what I have come to believe, and I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll be honest, it was Ellen White that led me this direction. In her Desire of Ages, her seminal statement on the death of the wicked, she says, this is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The sinners reap that which they have sown. Uh, by a life of rebellion, they have so put themselves out of harmony with God's glory that it is a consuming fire to them. To the righteous, it's not a consuming fire. But to the wicked, who have placed themselves out of harmony with God's glory, it is a consuming fire. Um, And that's what has led me to the final destruction of the wicked. And then, uh, so, Desire of Ages 764 and 763, should start on 763, and and read the whole uh, page 764, because she talks about the inevitable consequences of sin, that the angels were not clear on what would destroy the wicked. And I'm paraphrasing loosely now. Um, They were not clear on what would destroy the wicked. 
and they understood that uh, maybe God would execute them. But Jesus died, and, and she says that because of Jesus' death, they now understand that this is the inevitable result of sin. Sin, it doesn't make sense that God is both the creator and the destroyer. And we, we, lip, we, we give lip service to that. There's places in the Old Testament that suggest that. Um, but if God is the Savior, why would he also be the destroyer? If he's the creator, why would he also be the destroyer? So uh, there's another statement, and this is in Great Controversy, page 35. Page? Page 35. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance. Uh, in the outer destruction that befell them as a nation, and in all the woes that followed in them in their dispersion, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had stolen. Their sufferings are often represented as punishment visited upon them by the direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God. They had caused it. God could no longer protect them to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. The horrible cruelties enacted in the destruction of Jerusalem are are demonstration of Satan's vindictive power over those who yield to his control. We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from pull, passing fully under the control of Satan. Yeah. The disobedient and unthankful have a great reason for gratitude to God's mercy and long-suffering and holding in check the cruel, malignant power of the evil one. But when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand toward the sinner as the executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. So that's then kind of the beacon light that led me back then to the Bible and say, okay, how do we deal with the passages that seem to suggest that God kills people and destroys people and we have Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, Accord, and Abiram, and so on. And what I've come to believe is that the Bible has a, well, first of all, I do not believe in verbal inspiration. I believe that the language is human. And the and throughout the ancient world, even into Jesus' time, it was understood that the gods caused everything. Whether it was Israel, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it was Canaanites, the gods did everything. That's, that was the prevailing belief. So you see language that reflects that belief. So God, it, and, and in a sense you can say, well, God did do it because he let unleashed. So the question really becomes, how does God destroy does he unleash? I think with the flood, the earth became filled with violence, and we know what happened with Cain when the, he shed the blood of his brother Abel, and the earth swallowed it up and refused to yield crops to him. That suggests that, uh, that's metaphoric, mm-hmm. but it suggests that what we do in violence has an effect on the earth. It actually has a very negative, if, if we're violent, has a very negative uh, reaction on the earth. All we have to think about is global warming. 
um, to see the the effect of of drier climates where there used to be moisture. So if that's the case, we have the the whole system works out that violence breeds destructive forces. I think that the violence uh, before the flood, where it says the whole earth became filled with violence, actually literally caused something violent to happen to the earth. And one of the ways it could have been is if there was such a violent earthquake out in the, out in, in say, the, I didn't have oceans in those days necessarily, but in, in a base, water, big water base, if there was a great uh, earthquake that could tilt the axis. The axis understood, I, I've always understood, and I took this class in college called uh, physical geography, and we studied this. The axis is just tilted slightly. Temperatures and climate are uniform around the Earth, and everything's like Hawaii. If you tilt the axis to where we have it now, they, we have the kind of climate we have now. If the axis tilts further, we have drought all around the world. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we were having fairly consistent rains every year. And then there was an earthquake out in the ocean. And it tilted, they said it tilted the axis. We went into drought mode. Our, la our most recent drought, I think, was the result of that earthquake that tilted the axis. So if there was a, what would happen if the axis tilted sharply enough, dramatically enough because of an earthquake, it would cause the upheaval that brought the flood. So I, I see this as the natural consequences of sin, and where God is involved is that he restrains it as long as possible to give us a chance. Well, it kind of goes along with what God asked Adam and Eve to do as far as the flip side of that is he created them and then asked them to take care of, right? mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. take care of everything he created. Right. And so what you're describing is the opposite of that. Yeah. And so it would make sense that just the interconnection of all created beings yeah. and matter yeah. would be connected. I'll, I'll tell you a story that oh, my mother <laughs> that I, I think illustrates this very well. They used to live on, a, they actually built a house or had a house built on a part of a mountainside, kind of very, well, it was a hillside, part of a hillside that um, was mostly granite underneath. The um, backhoe operator <laughs> had to she'd dig out the, the foundation or pad that they were making, uh, called it half dome. <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so my mom brought in soil and, and put soil up against the bank, and, and she planted things, and they started flourishing, and the deer came along and said, Hmm, num num. <laughs> <laughs> and so they started chewing away, and my mom would get so aggravated with the deer. She'd go running out with pots and pans and screaming and yelling and chasing the deer away. And, and uh, eventually it got so the deer wouldn't even bother with her. You know, they would just keep on chewing. And um, 
the same time, her plants began to die. No matter what she did, she'd get new plants. No matter what she did, nothing flourished on that hillside. And she began to get more and more frustrated and and depressed about her situation because my mother loves to garden. She began to pray about it, and she started thinking, you know, things were growing there before I started chasing the deer away. (laughs) Maybe it's my attitude. Because she would be angry at those deer, and she would yell at them and... So she went to the nursery, got a whole bunch of new plants that she knew the deer would love. Because the plants that they said the deer wouldn't eat, the deer ate. So it didn't really matter what she planted. (laughs) So she got new plants and she put them in the ground and she didn't say any more to the deer. The deer started munching. The plants started flourishing. Everything began to flourish. And she found that she let the deer eat. She still had plenty, plenty of plants. And the end of the story is that my parents would throw out the apple peelings from, I gave them apples from my apple tree, and they would throw out the peelings to the deer. And they would put a bucket, a large pan of water out for the deer. Mm. And if that pan got empty, the deer would kick the pan to let them know, to give them water. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, my parents are feeding the deer and, and giving them water. Mm. Uh, and everything's happy. <laughs> the but connection of all creation. The connection of all creation. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we realize the effect we have. I, I found this with cats. I feed outdoor cats. And skunks. And skunks <laughs> and raccoons. <laughs> I have to feed the skunks in order to feed the cats. It's just yeah. kind of the law of life. Yeah. <laughs> you feed one, you feed all. <clears throat> um, but I feed cats, and I'd get mad at a cat who for snitching someone else's food. I tried to keep them all separate, all happy when their dishes. And I'd get mad at a cat that snitched his food, and I would hiss at him or stomp at him and, and drive him away. And all the cats then would just scatter and go, yeah. oh, no, she's on a rampage. We better not eat. Uh, and I, I learned, you know, that is just not good for cats. Yeah, but my neighbor's cats still tick me off because they come and they pick birds off my bird feeders. Oh. So am I supposed to take down my bird feeders? They've been there for 22 years, and these cats have been here for, what, three years? Mm-hmm. I chase them away, the cats. Yeah, you have to do that. But chasing them away, I, I was overdramatic with the way I was doing it. Well, one of the cats, he she knows that if I open the door to go down the street instead of right by my house, her mother... That's the problem, cat. And we've asked our neighbors to put collars with bells on them, and she won't do it, which is frustrating. So that the birds can hear, you mean? No, actually, yeah. Because the bird feeders are up. They have to wait. They have to startle the birds, and one hits the window and is stunned, and then they can get the bird. Mm -hmm. They've even gotten a blue jay that way. And That's a big bird. Yeah. (laughs) It's just frustrating. And so now when the cats hear... If, even if they're across the street, they hear my front door open, they're gone. <laughs> because mm-hmm. they know I'm going to at them. Mm-hmm. But You know, we talk about, you talk about the, you know, the relationship between, you know, your attitude of things. 
But if you start, take a step back and look at it, it's just not emotional. You can look at the physical issues. I mean, you can look at your car. If you don't take care of your car, you're going to have problems with it, and it's an inanimate object. It, you know, so yeah. um, it's it's like almost it's like the law of nature, so right. to speak. You know, it is <clears throat> it is really natural law. Okay, back to chapter two. Are you all ready to go on, or do we have more to discuss on here? That's a big subject. We started on. We can't be done with it. <laughs> no, we can discuss it for a long time. Okay. Dalene, would you read verses 11 to 22? I know that's a long piece. Do you want me to break it up? No, that's fine. Okay. Remember then your former condition, you Gentiles, as you are outwardly, you, the uncircumcised, so-called by those who are called the circumcised, but only with reference to an outward right. You were, at the time, separate from Christ, strangers to the community of Israel, outside God's covenants and the promise that goes with them. Your world was a world without hope and without God, but now in union with Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near through the shedding of Christ's blood. For he is himself our peace, Gentiles and Jews. He has made the two one, and in his own body of flesh and blood has broken down the enmity which stood like a dividing wall between them. For he annulled law with its rules and regulations so as to create two of this two a single new humanity in himself, thereby making peace. There, this was his purpose to reconcile, reconcile the two in a single body to God through the cross on which he killed the enemy. So he came and proclaimed the good news, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were nearby. For through him we both alike have access to the Father in one spirit. Thus you are no longer aliens in a foreign land, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself in the foundation stone. In him the whole building is bonded together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built with all the rest into a spiritual dwelling for God. Okay, any comments or questions? I just love that last phrase. In whom... You also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I'm taking that personally. I don't know if I'm missing the, the actual point, but um, yeah, I like that. It depends on what you is, if it's <clears throat> plural or singular. Built together. Probably you singular, but no, you plural. You're also being built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So it's talking about the body of Christ. And yet Paul elsewhere says that we are the temple right, exactly. of the Holy Spirit. So it's individual and it's community. Well, that's just such an awesome thing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that we would be there. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think that's the point of the whole passage is how he ends, how the chapter is ended, where they cut right. off. is. Mm-hmm. Is that you know we were we're trying to divide ourselves up into all these different things and this enmity and all this business. Holistic thinking and it kind of ended with the Israelite Hebrew nation 
Hebrew Bible. Hebrew Bible is really holistic in its thinking. But the Greeks took us a different direction. And started, we started putting things in a little tight, constrictive pieces and separating everything from everything so that we no longer can see the holistic thing. I think, I think that's one of the reasons why evolutionary theory had a chance to survive is because we could compartmentalize them. And the geologists didn't have to consult the physical geographists and the chemists didn't have to consult the geologists. And, I mean, we just we kept all those sciences. I mean, there's, there's, if you take all the sciences and, and some of the positive evidence for creation, for literal creation, there's a lot of evidence. But if you, if you just consult the geologic timetable, I feel like it's kind of our detriment to our detriment to think so so like that so individual. Yeah, it is. It kind of makes me sad because I'm a I'm, I live in this era, and so it's like, what am I missing out on that I wish I could be more holistic? And you know, <clears throat> and how do we like cultivate that? Holistic thinking is really right brain thinking. Mm-hmm. The compartmentalized thinking is is more your linear, mm-hmm. logical thinking of the left brain. And they're both helpful as long as they work together and are integrated. But if they become separated, then the left brain becomes rigid and, and unbending, and the right brain becomes chaotic. <laughs> so to have them integrated, and this is actually a science now. I'm not just talking in metaphors. Uh, the two hemispheres of the brain need to work together in order for integration to take place. And integration really is holism. It's taking all the parts and putting them together as a whole. So I, I was thinking of that actually just a few seconds ago when, when uh, Daling, brought, Daling read about, but now in Christ Jesus, you, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. How does the blood of Christ do that? As far as integrate and bring us together? Mm-hmm. How does he integrate our brains? <laughs> That's a good question. How does the blood do it? Well, my verse, my Bible says this, verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. So his blood reconciles them. By putting to death the enmity. I like the way this says in the other verse. So how how does the blood of Jesus put to death the hostility, which is what my version has? Hostility. Hostility. How does he put together the hostility that brings us together? Like, uh, let's make this very real. I know the church is divided over women's ordination. How would the blood of Jesus' death end that? hostility or that divisiveness and bring us together as a whole. It's a small group, so you can feel comfortable. (laughs) Yes, but I I don't know what uh, I need to, now that you brought the subject up, yeah, for me, so, I mean, what's the big deal? (laughs) I don't understand why men, sorry, Mm-hmm. I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Why men feel they have to control women. I don't understand that. 
Each person is a person. They should be able to make their own mind. And so why does the church feel that they have to control it? But you don't even have to. You can take it in a different context than that. It doesn't have to be about men controlling women. You can look at our nation, everybody's yes. personalities. It's all about control. It isn't about freedom. In other words, you know, our country wants to control, you know, the media. Or, you know, you can go right on down the list. It isn't about having an open, free society where you bring your benefit, your, your, your positives to, to the, and I'll add my positives, and we'll all get along in harmony because that just doesn't work with the div- diversive nature of the world at the moment. See, I was thinking of my dad. Well, that's because your dad... My dad is such an oxymoron. When I was a teenager, he was an advocate. He was a teacher, and he was an advocate for the students because if the old codgers of the church continued to run the church and run the, the young children out, the young people out, who's going to take over the church at one point? Mm-hmm. Now he is so flipping rigid the other way. It's like, where's the man that I grew up with? Hmm. You know, I I don't follow his train of thought on some things, and I argue with him, and that makes him mad. <laughs> well, one way of being an advocate is more the freedom way, right? As far as allowing people to to think, and yeah. and there's no really control over that and so fear comes into play yes and so when we get fearful we get controlling but what has and made him so fearful in old age that's what i don't i almost think it's i almost think it's just part of the part of the process of getting old and you don't your faculties aren't working as well you're in societal Things yeah. are getting and, worse. And things are yeah. getting worse scary. societal, and it's scary, yeah. and we yeah. feel like we're in chaos, so we got to right. be, we swing to the other side. Mm-hmm. See, this is borrowing an understanding of psychology that we either have chaos or rigidity and immaturity, or I think old age. I think the same thing happens in old age. The second <laughs> yeah, childhood. Yeah, they do get immature. The second, the second childhood, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of thing. And that the goal is to integrate and bring together everything. And and I think I would like to suggest that Paul gives a model in Romans no, first Corinthians twelve. He gives a model for integration. Do you remember what that it's really a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's gonna cheat. No. Well, <laughs> yes. the gifts. Um, Spiritual gifts. Well that's that's when he said about this <clears throat> many thoughts came to my mind, but uh, the one that just um, springs up right now is that uh, each one we fight for, um, each one, man or woman, um, I want to be right. And I will find whatever it is to, to prove my point. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so somebody else is thinking that woman's ordination should be Inclusive. Well, they go and look for that, and the ones that think that don't, they they go and look for that. And to me, that just ends up on on our own uh, egotism. It's about me, each one, in in our own in our own sphere. So, so how the blood. So, so what is what is um, the point in First Corinthians twelve that we're all an integrated body? Aren't we? 
And the foot has no right to say, I am not the hand, therefore I'm not part of the body. And the hand has no right to say, I'm not the head, therefore I'm not the part of the body. But no, Christ has made you all one in Christ Jesus. How has the blood done that? Well, if you look at it from a physical standpoint, the blood is what keeps your body alive. It integrates everything. Absolutely. Right? Because, because it moves through the, this very central, yeah. if you very holistic. If you cut the blood off to your hand, your hand's going to die. Right. Um, so that's a good metaphor. What did Jesus shedding his blood, how did that provide integration? Well, for one, there was that opposite of what you just said about selfless, selflessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. His selfless giving of his life. If we all lived that model, would we give in to the people who are right? The people who are right are the people who think they are right. (laughs) Well, if everyone thought that the other is right, if everyone gave in to the other saying you're right, the right would be in the center. It, there would be integration. Cause, yeah, because everyone's so, saying so you're right, we, so it's going to be right here. Could we translate this into a, co- a committee meeting? Make this kind of real. I want to get as as real about this as possible. Uh, we're in a committee meeting, and there's two sides. The person who's integrated, well, people who aren't integrated, the rigid people, say that the Bible says it, I believe it, and you've got to go by it. The people in chaos mode say, look, I don't care what the Bible says. This is the way we need to go. I'm, I'm being very loose there. What would the integrated person say? You need to lower some standards, and you need to bring some standards up so we come to an even playing field. So, What's the middle road? What's the middle road? So would it be a cop-out answer to say that I don't agree with your perspective, but we're going to go along with it? Because if it's right, the Lord will prove it. If it's wrong, the Lord will prove it. Is that a cop-out on my part to... It might be a way forward. I don't know. I don't know if it's a cop-out or not. It to, might, you know, might be a way Take the easy forward. way out. It might be a way forward. It wouldn't work in the Civil War. <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, South, you get your way, you can have slavery. Yeah. See, that's the problem. When it becomes a moral issue, uh, what do you do then? How do you do that integration? I think the person who's integrated would say, maybe both sides are missing something here. What are we missing? That's the reason we're thinking about the women's ordination that if they had gone with the vote of saying those unions are parts of the world that sees that they can have it, let them have it. But those who don't, let them also respect them because they're not, let, let them work, work it out. Then we'll both be, uh, in a way, integrated to say, okay, those conferences that say they shouldn't do it, let them not do it. Okay, but and, and do, one, of, do it. one of the problems has been in this discussion is definition of terms. Mm-hmm. Unity is not, not uniformity. uniformity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and, and it's diversity, and that's what Paul is really talking about with the spiritual gifts. We are a diverse body. It's diversity that makes up the whole. Integration is allowing diversity. It's allowing the freedom and, and the perception of the whole. What I think is that the blood of Jesus shed for the whole world, isn't it? It's all-inclusive. And when we have our petty little arguments and, and feuds, we are denying that. We are denying that Jesus died for everyone. No, he only died for us who are right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to, because I've always struggled with the blood of Jesus. It just did not make sense. I needed some clarification and some, some explanation. And it just actually came to me this last week that the blood of Jesus is his self, self-denying love, his self-sacrificing love. That's what it represents. So what do we do with verse 15? Because this has been a thorny one for Advents. Verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that one? Which no, is the he, has abolished the, he has abolished the law with his commandments and ordinances. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Here it says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, I guess. Okay. Contained in ordinances. He, I have, have... Hostility is in the previous verse. Mm. I, it, it breaks it down a little differently. Oh, so, okay. uh, for he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing law that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law. So it, oh, it doesn't... Sa- yours, yours is a more Adventist <laughs> version. What is version. this for Hinalda? New American Standard. Mm. Law of its rules and Oh, so we don't like it because it says abolishing the law? Mm-hmm. That in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. This is the law, the ceremonial law. That's how we've interpreted it. That works for ordinances, but what about the law and its commandments? Yeah, but the mind says that the mind box says the law of commandments contained in ordinances. <laughs> okay. It's a more Adventist for transferring. This is this is a difficult passage, but I think we have to balance it out. This is this is how I integrate things is by saying, you know, but it says over here. Let's let's balance this out and see if how it works. Paul is very clear that he's not doing away with the law. Therefore, he says, therefore, faith establishes the law. So he's not saying he did away with the law. Is the law the Ten Commandments? The law, the law would be Torah. The first five books. And, and I think his version is right. I haven't done the Greek on this, but I think it would be the law with his commandments concerning ordinances. Mm-hmm. So it would be this, the ritual law, the <coughs> Le- law of Leviticus, mm-hmm. most of Leviticus. There's some laws that aren't ritual in Leviticus. I don't want to spend a long time on that. Yeah, I was going to say how... I'm not very... Leviticus is on the sacrifices, yeah. the rituals in the temple, the right. feast days. So how does that apply? Today, 
when we're reading if that if it's referring to that law. It means we don't have to keep it. He abolished it. Well, we technically don't keep it. We don't keep right. rituals right. from that time. Right. And so why is that a problem? It's not. It's a problem in that some people take it to mean the te- whole law, the Decalogue. Was the Ten Commandments. Yeah. That's, that's why I brought, even brought it up. It's and to me, that's just even silly to even complain or argue about that because, like, I mean, when you think about that shall not kill and that shall not steal, I mean, that's just like... Yeah. Well, why would you think that he's... You're concerned that he got rid of that because... Mm-hmm. I had an interesting... That, that's just... I had an interesting discussion with two Jesus that. people back in the time of the period of the Jesus people population <clears throat> uh, in Berkeley. I was a college student. And uh, <clears throat> these two Jesus people persons came up and started talking with my friend and I. We were, so here were two women and two men um, having this discussion about the Sabbath. <laughs> and apparently they had had a next-door neighbor who was an Adventist who was w- witnessing to them over the backyard fence and was trying to convince them of the Seventh-day Sabbath. And um, they brought up, I believe, this text. And we got nowhere. I mean, I kept shooting back this and that and the other thing, and they just, we read the wire, said, no integration possible. Finally, I closed my Bible, and I put, my hand, put it behind my back. And I said, may I tell you why I keep the Sabbath? Sure. And I told them what it meant to me. And it was the end of discussion. <laughs> you know, they couldn't argue with the right brain response. They can only argue with the left brain. And hopefully then they could go home and put it all the pieces together, but I doubt if they did. They just let me have my experiential understanding of the same. We, our time is up. We need to go. But, uh, Ephesians is, is as full of the gospel as um, Romans. It's not maybe as systematic as Romans. But it certainly has it. Gracious Father, we thank you for another book that gives us uh, the plan of salvation, that, which points us to an integrated understanding of, of reality of Jesus. We pray that uh, you will help us to have that integration in our own minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.